and I just appreciate him because this is the first Sunday I haven't preached since last January. So I just thank him. So there you go. Your congregation wishes you would skip more often. <laughs> you keep saying that. Don't don't introduce people like that. You set them up. <laughs> first time he hasn't preached in a while. The con- a big thank you card they're going to send you, Jeremiah. But <laughs> I'm just messing with you. My name is Jimmy Meeks. I live in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. We did a seminar here yesterday, a couple of seminars. I was a police officer for 35 years, five years in Oklahoma, and 30 years in Texas. And I've been preaching the gospel. I grew up in Arkansas, started preaching in 1973. But I'm from Texas. Everybody know where Texas is? State on bottom, holds up the other 49. I'm sure you've heard of it. But I was born and raised in Arkansas. How many know where Arkansas is? Oh, yeah, now I'm doing a lot better since my sister and I got a divorce. <clears throat> Things have been looking up. Got my first pair of shoes, got some new teeth. I'm really excited about life. All right, well, I have a long drive, so this is going to be a short sermon. I was looking on my Siri maps, and it's a 15-hour drive, so I bet I can get to Tucson by dark. So I'm not going to keep you here very long. But I do want to give you what I've been given. This is the same marriage, a marriage, same message, all this marriage talk. Get me thinking, I've been married 45 years, whereas my wife would say 45 years too long. So anyway, it won't be a long sermon. Uh, Turning your Bibles to Luke 15. I've been sharing this same message since around 1987. I've shared it in hundreds of services across the country, running around, and people have a very difficult time with this message. Luke 15. There we have a story of Jesus telling about three lost items. Remember? The man that lost a sheep, the woman that lost a coin, the father that lost a son. Let me just give you a couple things I've observed over the years. I've been now, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean that I'm anyone significant or special. It just happens to be my story. But I've been in a lot of churches across this country, from Miami to Seattle, from Bangor, Maine to Los Angeles. I was up a few months ago up in Minneapolis riding around and with the Minneapolis police officers, uh, ministering to them and, and working in the George Floyd zone when that terrible tragedy happens. And I just spent a lot of time with a lot of people, especially Christian people, and I have become convinced of something. There is a lot of confusion about God. A lot of confusion. And that confusion has also crept into the church. This is just my experience. It may not be yours. But I've noticed a lot of people who profess faith in Christ, a lot of people have difficulty with God in knowing what he's really like. And there's a lot of confusion in the world. I mean, we have more religions uh, that are just coming out of the woodwork, from Scientology to New Ageism, uh, Hinduism, and Judaism. Of course, they've been around forever. And uh, the Islam, Islamic religion, and of course, the Christian faith. The Christian faith, you may not know it, but the Christian faith is no longer the world's fastest growing religion. Did you know that? By 2050, the Muslim Islam religion will be the most powerful religion or the fastest growing religion in the world. A lot of disturbing things happening in the world of Christianity. Did you know seven out of ten young people leave church when they graduate high school? Everything we do for them. We let, we sing their music. We entertain them. We have all kinds of stuff for them. In spite of that, over seven, closer to eight out of ten, when they graduate high school, they also graduate church, and they quit going. A lot of people are abandoning the faith. I read stories all the time of well-known people, musicians, and even ministers, 
who've abandoned the faith. There's just a lot of confusion about God. Now, please forgive my voice. I've been sick for about a week or two. I just got back from Wuhan, China. And uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I've had a hard time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some water down here. It's got a shot of bourbon in it, and it's been making me feel a lot better. I'm just kidding. I know nothing about the Alliance Christian denomination. For all I know, you're a bunch of drunks for all I know. I don't know what you do. <laughs> but you do seem like a lot of happy people. I didn't know there was a courtside Arizona. Is there anything big around here? Is there another town? I mean, it's like nothing, nothing rocks, right? <laughs> you have lots of rocks. Well, we have a lot of that in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a lot of rocks in human form. <laughs> Luke 15, look at this now. Let me show you this, okay? Verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now think about that for a moment. Before Jesus tells these three stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, you need to know who he's telling this story to because I want to I emphasize the story of the prodigal son. You've probably heard it a thousand times, but I want you to see some things about it. But it's really important to understand who Jesus is talking to. These are sinners. These are the outcasts. These are the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the sex addicts, the dope addicts. These are the ones who in their minds had a belief that God just did not want to have anything to do with them. That's what religion teaches people, that God is just not interested in your life. So the people listening to Jesus would have been utterly and completely stunned at what they're hearing because what he's telling them is that there is a God who is interested in all of the details of your life and everything about you. So he tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then he gets to the story of the prodigal son. Let's just read it right quick, all right? I think it uh, starts in verse 12. In verse 11, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living or wasteful living. The son takes the inheritance, he goes to a foreign land, and he blows it all. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. And he began to be in want and need. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And this young boy would have been a young Jewish boy. And there would have been nothing more disgraceful than having a job where you feed swine. Where you feed pigs, an unclean animal. Verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to party. That's what that word merry means. Now, again, remember who Jesus is talking to. The outcast, the rejects. The kind of people that you point at and tell your children, whatever you do when you grow up, do not be like them. But there's something else you need to understand about this story. Jesus is wanting to show you and I and the people that are listening, he's wanting to show them what God is like. His character, his personality, if you will. His character traits, his nature. That's something people have a very hard time with. And I'm going to tell you something. In my experience, in thousands of sermons, church people are so... I heard the sister talking about it earlier. It's as if she read my notes, which I don't have any, but as if she did. Legalism is probably the biggest threat to most churches. Every church has its little rule. You know, something they're big on. Something you can't do. Somewhere you can't go. Something you're not supposed to believe. You've got to meet on Saturday, says one denomination. Oh, no, you've got to meet on Tuesday nights between 6 and 7 or whatever. Every church, every denomination seems to have its own little man-made rules. You ever notice that? Something they're big on. Uh, I'm a Baptist, and uh, they're very big on making sure that women are not behind the pulpit, even though we've got a bunch of screwed-up men who are. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go too far there, but I keep forgetting we're live-streaming here, so you no longer have a local service that goes all over the world. But that's what religion does. Religion always has a bunch of rules and regulations, precepts and principles, do's and don'ts, and thou shalt and thou shalt not. The way you ought to look, the way you ought to dress, or not dress, the way you not look. There's just always something. And in the midst of it all, it becomes very bewildering and perplexing and confusing, confusing, confusing about God. And Jesus is trying to convey to us here a few things. I'm going to just take three things that he wants you to see about God. Because the father in this story represents the heart of God. And the prodigal son represents you and I. He takes his share of the inheritance. He goes off into a foreign country and blows it all on wine, women, and song. Alcohol, drugs, prostitutes. He's broke. He spends all of his money. And to make matters worse, a famine hits the land. <clears throat> and then he has to get a job feeding pigs. This guy is at the bottom of the barrel at the end of his rope. And he thinks to himself one day, if I could just go home to my father and be as a hired servant, at least I'd have something to wear, something to eat, and some shelter from the storm. So he starts going home. And here's when we begin to see the heart of his father and the heart of our heavenly father. Now please, try to envision this. Picture this in your mind. The father's on his front porch, and when he sees this son coming, we are told that he ran toward the son, fell on him, and kissed him. Now, time out. Hold on a second. Remember, this is a picture of God. When he sees that son coming home, the father runs down the road, tackles him like a linebacker hitting a halfback, takes him to the ground, and begins to kiss him repeatedly. And Jesus wants you to see that that is the attitude of our heavenly father, toward us. You ever see God as someone who says, I sure do enjoy holding you. I sure do. You ever see God as somebody who just enjoys loving on you? Not as somebody who's trying to get you to tithe more, come to church more, be more active, do this or do that with an endless list of demands. Do you ever see your father as someone who just wants to hold you? 
Jesus looked out over Jerusalem one time and wept and said, How often I've wanted to just gather you like a mother hen does her chicks and just hold you under my wings. God loves to love on people. Number one, the, the one thing you've got to get, and it's simple, we're taught in vacation Bible school when we're in the first and second grade, but somehow or another it begins to elude our memory and escape our minds. But you need to hear this. And I share this everywhere, and people have a very hard time with it. But listen carefully. I need to show you this about your Heavenly Father. The God of the Bible, your Heavenly Father, is a ferocious, flaming, fiery, fierce, passionate, wild, steaming, hot, romantic, adventurous lover. Hard to accept, is it not? Most of you don't know what to do. You look like you've froze over. The frozen chosen. Well, you don't know that because, well, number one, and I don't want to make you feel bad, but you haven't spent a lot of time in this. You spend a lot of time on the Internet. You spend a lot of time texting and Facebooking and messaging and keeping up with your favorite football team. But you know something? The more you study of the Scripture and the more experience you have of God, you come to realize our Father is, as Elvis might sing, a hunk of hunk of burning love. Your Father loves you passionately. Now, let me ask you this. I asked it. Everywhere I go, I asked it this morning. How many of you think, boy, it's just a miracle that he loves us? Amen? Why would you think that? You think that because you haven't studied your Bible. It's no miracle that he loves you. It would be a miracle if he did not love you because God is love. Think now. You look at it that way because of human love. There are people that are difficult to love. Those of us who have been married, we celebrated you, but you know, it ain't all... I mean, you're here and she's in Montana. I couldn't do that, brother. I've been gone a week from my wife and Jeremiah's starting to look pretty. I need to get home. Does anybody know what I mean? A month? Are you kidding me? No way. It's no miracle God loves you. Listen, it would be a miracle if he did not love you because he would have to act contrary to his nature. God is love. He has no problem loving an Osama bin Laden, a Joe Biden, or you. He loves the Democrats? Yes, he does. If he's having any trouble with anybody, it's probably with the right-wingers these days, but that's another sermon. You would think, and I threw this in the last service, let me just share something with you. When the right doesn't win an election, God does not fall off his throne. Give me a break. What is wrong with all the right-wingers in this country? Especially those who profess faith in Christ. Well, I can't stand Biden. I can't stand Harris. can't stand the left-wing. Well, listen, God has never been about politics to begin with. He's about his church, his kingdom, period. And it doesn't matter. We've had 46 presidents, and not a one of them has ever done any permanent good for this country. Not one. We've had thousands of senators, hundreds of senators, thousands of congressmen and congresswomen, and none of them have ever gone to work for us. When are we going to wake up and realize the answer is not in the White House, but God's house? We are the city on a hill. We are the light of the world. I don't give a flying flip who they put in office. It doesn't matter. No matter who we've put there, it's never lasted. We've never had any good change. We are as divided now as we have been since the Civil War, and we will never go back. And it is not time to panic, cry, and worry, and gripe about the left. It is time to just be God's people. To be captivated by the love and the heart of our Father and to share that. And beloved, next thing you know, we will fool around and convert the whole country. 
We're never going to force people into righteousness. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. If you really want to start becoming like Jesus, why don't you spend more time with drunkards and prostitutes? Quit saying, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. You don't love the sinner. If you did, you'd spend more time with them. You'd spend more time. You'd spend more time at the bars. We're not supposed to go there. He did. The Savior in whom you put your trust hung around with drunkards, prostitutes, and spent time at the bar. You can't just say you love the sinner but hate the sin if you don't actually go out and love the sinner. And with the heart of the Father, when you begin to find out how he... Listen, this is God's strong, emotional, passionate feelings toward you. He wants to take you to the ground and hold you and kiss you all over because he's a loving God. Now, how do I know he loves me? Is it because I drive a nice car? You'll hear people say, well, the Lord loves me. He has blessed me with a new car. You should never say that. You can get a new car without God. All you need is credit. Will you quit saying he blessed you with a new car? Or he blessed you with a promotion? Or he blessed you with more money? Listen, Bill Gates has $150 billion in the bank and he says there is no God. The possessions you have, the car you drive, the money you've got, the house you live in, has nothing whatsoever to do with the love of God. The biggest devils in town have those things. Most of the wealthy, rich millionaires and billionaires could care less about God. How do we measure God's love? Listen, here's how I know He loves me. I know He loves me because of the bloody, bruised, beaten, battered, broken body of Jesus crucified to the cross. I know he loves me because he gave me the most expensive thing, quote unquote, he could. He gave me the life of his son. The cross is the evidence of God's love. Not your car, cash, or cottage. Are you hearing me? The scripture says, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. The scripture says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus is the evidence of God's love me. No, God loves me. Nobody can stand at the foot of the cross and look up at the scarred, broken, torn, sweaty, bloody face of Jesus. Nobody can look at that and ask, does God love me? Jesus is the proof of God's love. I may drive a car that doesn't get me out of the garage. I may live in a house where the foundation is cracked and the roof is leaking. I may have a job that does not meet ends meet. However, ends meet. However, that has nothing to do with the Father's love. I know He loves me because of the cross. He loves you. Would you agree with me that God loves Jesus? He said, this is my beloved Son whom I love. Well, Jesus said in John, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. You ever think about that? We all know he loves Jesus. The pagans know that. The Bible says he loves you as much as he loves his only son. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. The second thing we see in this is that the Father is very forgiving. The Son just comes back and says, I have sinned against heaven and you. Now listen to this. The Father doesn't even bring up what the Son has been doing wrong. I would have been like, wait a minute, Son. I've been following you on Twitter and Facebook. You've been spending all your money on prostitutes and drugs and alcohol and all this other stuff. Do you have any of my inheritance left? Not so easy here. 
The father does not even bring up the issue of his sins. The son confesses, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And in the moment there's confession, in the same moment there's complete forgiveness. There's not a thing. And I guarantee you, I've preached this sermon. I've long since lost count. Thousands of times ago, in every audience, there are going to be men and women who are plagued by something they've done that nobody knows about. There's always a man in the audience that was unfaithful to his wife, or vice versa, or parents who have failed, or children who have rebelled. There's always people out there that are struck by something that has happened to them. There's always, think about this. According to Billy Graham's grandson who researches this, in every congregation, 20% of the people in there are survivors of sex abuse. So we have 60 people in here today, close to 20. I'm going to single anybody out. I'm just saying that those things have terrible, traumatic effects on people. We have over 1,500 people sexually assaulted in this country every day. Every day, every year, 464,000 people sexually assaulted. Every 98 seconds, an American is assaulted. And 20% of the people, probably even in this room, are victims of that. And that happened to some of you years ago. I've heard stories all over this country. I myself as a child, me, I remember when I was a kid being kidnapped and assaulted. It was a terrible thing. There's no telling how that scarred me. And sometimes that leaves guilt and condemnation. Or you think it was my fault. Or maybe you thought it was your fault. Or you just feel so dirty. But the truth of the matter is, you did nothing wrong. And even if you did something wrong, when all is said and done, you've got a Father who has made forgiveness possible through the shed blood of Christ. There is nothing you have done, said, or thought that cannot be washed away by the blood of the Son. In Him we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. God loves to forgive. He delights in forgiveness. He delights in mercy. Do you know that? We often delight in somebody's demise when they've done something wrong. He deserved it. He had it coming. What if we all got what we deserved? We would all fry like in hell, like fry like bacon. If we all got, the Bible says in Psalms, He does not deal with us as our sins deserve, for He knows our frame that we are but dust. But He's a forgiving God. He loves us. He forgives. He also celebrates over us, thirdly. <coughs> Never see God as somebody who celebrates you. There's a beautiful verse. I love to read it out of Zephaniah. This is the Old Testament, Israelites. Think how much more true it is now that we live on this side of the cross. Listen to what the prophet Zephaniah, God said through him about his people. He said, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you ever see yourself as somebody that God just takes a lot of pleasure in and he sings and rejoices and the word in the Hebrew there means to leap and twirl about that he leaps and twirls about celebrates you that he actually dances over you you just turn God on it's kind of new to hear that in it we're not used to that people have a very difficult time I think people have a very difficult difficult time with the fact that God is just that good he's that loving He's that forgiving. And he's, the son comes home, no mention of his sins. They kill a fatted calf. They put a robe on him. What could that robe signify? You know what that robe signifies? The Bible speaks of the robes of righteousness. 
How righteous are you on a scale of one to a hundred? Anybody want to answer that? You are 100% righteous. Why? Because the Bible says you have been given the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How righteous is he? Think about it now. I don't have time to quote the 45 verses. Think of it this way. Here's God. Here's you. 1 Corinthians 1 says, By God's doing, you have been placed inside of Jesus Christ. How righteous is he? How righteous is Jesus? It's not hard. 100%. He has transferred his righteousness to your account. You've got to spend more time in the Word. You've got to get updated on the spiritual information that's relevant, pertinent, and helpful to your life. We have, Romans 5 says, the gift of righteousness. That doesn't mean I don't mess up. I mess up a lot. That's why it's called a gift and not wages. A gift comes to you at the expense of the giver. Galatians 3.27 says, For all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're wearing the robe of righteousness. That is God's gift to you. That is God's gift. You've got to see yourself the way God sees you. When I was a police officer, I was on duty one day. Or I might have been off duty, I forget. But I came across this woman who was on her fourth or fifth marriage. And I said, Rhonda, would you like for me to tell you why you keep going from one man to the next and one bed to the next? I said, I can tell you. She said, I would love to know. I, I just can't find the right husband. And I've seen this. I've long since lost count. I've met hundreds of women who just went from one marriage to the next, one relationship to the next, and I know why they do it. And I said, Rhonda, let me tell you why. She said, please tell me why. I said, you, you are struck with a strong sense of worthlessness. You don't think you're worth anything, so you take anything that comes along. And she broke down and cried like a baby. Because most people I have met, especially as a police officer, and going to a thousand domestic disturbances and hundreds of disturbance calls and dealing with troubled people, I noticed, especially in women, there was just this strong sense of, I'm not worth a good man, or I'm not worth it. And even women who profess faith in Christ, you know, the Bible says in Hosea 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What you don't know can hurt you. And the truth is, you're a daughter of the Most High God. That makes you worth something. Right? But that's where the enemy comes in and whispers to us of our worthlessness. And that's why we end up with such low self-esteem or inferiority complexes. Or we, we hate. I've, I've met women who can't even look in the mirror, who, who despise themselves and hate themselves. Listen, I mean, that's, that's not the voice of your father. That's not the voice of your father. He celebrates you. He has given you the robe of I could just run through the whole New Testament and show you over and over that the righteousness of Christ. You'll have to. I'm not knocking you. I'm not putting you down. It would defeat the very purpose. You're going to have to spend more time in this book. Do you recognize this book? I don't know. I, I go places everywhere. They don't. It's the Bible. I devour it. I spend two, three, four, five hours a day in this book. I wake up sometimes at 3 or 4 in the morning like a little child. I've been doing this for 50 years. You learn from Him. This sustained me. My daughter, my daughter died the other day. 
in my arms. I love my oldest daughter. And the only thing that sustains me, the only thing that has kept me going, is to rise up early in the morning and pour over this book until I'm flat drunk with it. Anybody with me? You'll have to spend as much time in this book as you do surfing the net. Texting and Facebooking and all of the other worthless things you do. Watching the news. Getting up to watch Fox News. May God save us from Fox News. Let me just go on record right now. Save us from Sean and Tucker and all of them. God save us from all of them. Babe. Good morning America or whatever. Why not get up in the morning and let your father make sweet love to you. And talk to you. That's what sustains me. I get up and I cry a lot and I think of her. But I must tell you that the love and the forgiveness and the celebration that God has over me, it has sustained me because I thought I would die. I didn't think I could make it without my oldest child. I don't know why I told you that. I probably shouldn't have. I'm, just, I'm here with you a few minutes and I'm just, I just want to motivate, motivate you to... Tune into heaven's frequency. Turn on heaven's good morning, America. Here it is. Men and women have died, shed their blood to keep this book for us. Pour over it. I read, I even, Jeremy, Jeremiah, I keep calling him Jeremy. You told me your name was Jeremy. I know you're denying it, but you're not being truthful. Then <laughs> you wanted to go with Dr. J. You are not Dr. J. Driving out here, I'm so addicted to it, I propped it up on the steering wheel and read it for a hundred miles. I know I need to get that off my chest and confess that. And I've been doing that since 1973. I haven't done it with perfection, but this is how you hear what your father says to you. And it's more important than what Tucker Carlson has to say or Sean Hannity. God help us. This... And I am a right-wing conservative guy, but I'm also a disciple of Jesus, and what he says comes first. God is not falling off his throne. God is not panicking. God is not surprised by the outcome of midterm elections. His truth is marching on. Nobody's going to stop him. The Bible says no plot against the Lord shall succeed. On resurrection morning... The Pharisees got Pilate to authorize a Roman seal on the tomb. Basically, they glued the tomb shut, put Roman guards there, and God laughed. An angel came down and kicked it like a little football. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose forever from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Can I get an amen? amen. By the way, let me throw this in for you. I'm just throwing everything at you, and then I'm going to hit the road. Listen to this out of Psalms 2. David says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the people of the earth and the politicians and the government say, God and His Christ will not rule over us. Look at the response of God. I'm reading from Psalm 2. The response of God. I just read you the first three verses. The response of God is in verse 4. Are you ready? This is God's response to all the people and politicians who say, God and Christ shall not have their way. Psalm 2, 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> Isn't that good? <coughs> he who sits in the heavens <coughs> shall laugh. God is laughing. 
to think that men will have their way. Your Father loves you. Your Father forgives you. He celebrates you. He put that robe of righteousness on His Son. By the way, did you notice? He also put a ring on His finger. You know what the ring was? The ring was a credit card. That's how you paid your bills in Jesus' day. You wore a ring. You went to the grocery store, and the credit card was your ring. You made an impression in some kind of dirt or clay, and that was a promise to come back and pay on payday. Can you imagine this? Your son comes home. He's just blown every dime on alcohol, drugs, and prostitutes. And the first thing you do is, I'm glad you're here. I kiss you. Here, take my credit card. Isn't that the last thing you would do? You know what God has done for us in Christ in spite of our sin? Not only is He loving us and does love us and will always love us and forgive us, He restores our credit. That is, He gives us access to Him through Jesus Christ. I can always go to Him. If I've had a terrible day, if I have sinned in every way possible, or if I haven't sinned at all, I can always go in through the blood and name of Jesus. I am always welcome to come to the Father. I remember one night I was driving along in my police car. About three in the morning, freezing cold. I always kept my windows down though so I could hear if there was any noise going on. And I was on one of my infamous guilt trips. I'd just been failing a lot, it seemed like. I'm always upset with my wife or <coughs> upset with my children. Just, I just didn't like the way I was acting as a Christian. And I had these guilt trips. They plagued me for years. And it was 3.15, freezing cold, not a soul in sight on the midnight shift. There in my police car, and I remember coming to a stoplight, and I just stopped. And I just thought, and I said this to God out loud. I bet you get so tired of coming to me and having to cheer me up. And I dropped my head on the steering wheel. I did not expect a response, but I got one. You know what he said? Son, it never bothers me to come and pick you up. It was almost out loud. It happened again a few years later. I was at a stop sign. Things happen to me at red lights and stop signs. I was on another guilt trip. On my way to see my in-laws. They were missionaries. I was going to see them. They were home on furlough. And I was by myself. And we were getting together for lunch. A block or two from their house. I stopped at a stop sign. A block or two from their house. And I said, God, how do you stand to even look at me? I expected no reply. You know what he said? Son, I see the finished project. Excuse me, I see the finished product. I see the finished product. I see. I see where I'm... God's got big vision, right? He sees the final moment in time. He knows when the end will come. Could be today, could be a thousand years from now. He sees it. He sees where He's taking you. He loves you. He forgives you. He has clothed you with the robe of righteousness. He has put a ring on your finger. And you are not. The Son expected to be a servant. Did you know God has no servants in the kingdom? Are you aware of that? Paul said to the Galatians, From henceforth you are no longer servants, but sons. We are His sons and daughters. The servants live in, out by the outhouse. We live in the palace with the king. We are sons and daughters. We are sons. And we are daughters. I shared this this morning. I'll share this and then I'll close. <coughs> I once read a story in a, one of the greatest books I've ever read. Jeremiah, you ever read that book? I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. J, have you ever read this book? Uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey? Anybody like to read in the room? 
one of the greatest books ever read. Finished it driving down the highway, I confess. What's so amazing about grace? 30 years ago, Philip Yancey tells the story of a young girl named Susan. That's the name I'll give her. She lives with her parents. She's about 15, 16 year, years old. And they live in Traverse City, Michigan, where all the cherry trees are and beautiful in the fall and what have you. And she's been having some trouble with her parents. So one night when she goes to bed after having another argument with them, she decides to act out a plan she's been working on for quite some time. When everybody goes to sleep, this little teenage girl, Susan, sneaks out of her window, sneaks out of the house, gets on a bus, and goes 60 miles away to Detroit. Her parents are going to wake up to this horror the next morning. No sooner is she in the bus station than she is approached by a very nice man. You know where this is going, right? He's a pimp, a trafficker, human trafficker. He's real nice to her. Uh, she befriends him, and she's very grateful. Next thing you know, he's got her living in this beautiful apartment with all this beautiful furniture, plenty of food, all the clothes, her life. All she has to do is turn tricks for men. She lives the life of a prostitute. And because she's so young and beautiful, she makes a lot of money doing this. Well, time goes on, and that kind of lifestyle comes back to haunt you, does it not? She contracts a disease, and she gets sick. Now she's gotten where she looks older. There's nicotine stains on her fingers, and she can hardly stand the sight of herself. So her boss comes along and says, hey, sorry, you're out. And he throws her out on the cold streets of Detroit. She sleeps in the alley at night. Sometimes for cover, all she has is newspapers. One day she's at the store buying some groceries to eat. She looks up at a milk carton, and there's her picture on the milk carton with the caption, Have you seen this child? He scares her. Days pass. She grows more and more miserable. And then one night she wonders, I wonder if I could go home. She thinks it over a few days. Finally, she musters up the courage to call home and ask if she could come home, but the answering machine comes on, so she hangs up. She sits and thinks about it for a few moments, and then puts a couple of quarters back in the machine, or in the payphone, and then calls her house. The answering machine comes on, it's her daddy's voice, and she says, Dad, Mom, it's me, Susan. I was thinking about coming home. I'll be at the bus station in Traverse City tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. If you're there, wonderful. If you're not, I'll just keep going. I understand if you don't want me. She hung up the phone, and for the next 24 hours before she got on the bus and all the way there, she had to wonder, did they catch the message? She's cruising down the road. It's a snowy night. She looks out the window. It says Traverse City, 16 miles. She gets out her little compact mirror, looks at herself. She's so disgusted with how old she looks and the cigarette stain, nicotine stains all over her fingers. She's so nervous. She keeps asking, I wonder if they got my message. And then she keeps rehearsing what she's going to say. Finally, the driver of the bus comes on and says, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're now pulling into Traverse City. We'll be here 15 minutes, 15 minutes, and then everybody needs to be back on. And we're headed to Canada. Susan thinks 15 minutes. Wow. She gets off the bus, and she starts walking toward the terminal. She walks in the terminal, and of all the sights that she had imagined in her brain, she sees one that never came to her mind. Forty people standing next to each other, wearing goofy party hats, blowing those goofy little horns, shouting and screaming, Welcome home, Susan! She is shocked. There's her brother, her sister, 
grandma, grandpa, even a great-grandfather, her cousins, aunts and uncles, friends from all over town, 40 of them, singing and shouting. She looks up on the wall in the bus terminal. There's a big old computer-generated sign. Welcome home, Susan. She is shocked and overcome by this incredible loving reception. Reception. All of a sudden, guess who comes walking out of the crowd? Who would that be? Who she dreaded seeing? Her daddy. Daddy comes walking out of the crowd. He gets up close to her and she says, Daddy, I'm so sorry. And then Daddy takes his hand and puts it over her mouth. Child, this is no time for apologies. We have a party to get to. That is the heart of your father. That is the heart of your father. He loves, he forgives, he celebrates. I'm not saying you're free to go out and sin. That's not. Sometimes I get accused, well, you just think we can do anything we want to do? I sure do. I believe I am free to do whatever I want to do, and I will go do it. Now, you may have a hard time with that and say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, maybe you, before you judge me, you should ask me what I want to do. Because you know what I really want to do? I want to heal every broken heart in the United States. I would love to go to hospitals where sick kids are and lay my hands on them and raise them to life. Anybody with me? If I could do what I wanted to do, I wouldn't go live in adultery or feed my flesh. I would go out here and turn this world around for Christ. And I guarantee you, the people in this room that are blood-bought, born again, if you were really liberated and freed, captivated by this loving, forgiving, partying-type God, you too would go out determined to do all the good you can with the time that you have left. Because that's what's in our hearts. The love of our Father in what we would choose more than anything. And to say, as Jesus said, I delight to do thy will. I'm done, Dr. J. I got a long drive. I need a chauffeur is what I need. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Can I pray for him? Is that okay? <coughs> Let's pray. Well, what are you doing? What are you bowing your heads for? Did you know there's not one command in the New Testament to bow your heads and close your eyes? Why do you do that? That's a religious tradition started some time ago. Jesus never did it, except in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell face down. Most of the time in public when he prayed, every time, he held his head up. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he prayed. The Bible says he looked toward heaven. In the Gospel of Mark, before he healed the deaf mute, he looked up toward heaven. Before he multiplied fish and bread, he looked up toward heaven. John 17, his famous prayer with the Father, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Why would we talk to our Father up in heaven while looking toward hell? See how religion gets into the churches? Now, here's the glory of it. We're free. If you want to bow your heads, it's fine. You say, I'm do that out of reverence. That's what the publican did. The publican did that opposed to the Pharisee, but the publican, that was before he was saved. He went from a servant to a son. We are sons and daughters. You don't go to your father. Father, can I borrow the keys to the car? Father, your father, right? Jesus has made that possible. The Lord bless you and keep you. And make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and give you grace. And Father, I pray that you would just bless the stuffings out of this church. Jeremiah and his wife and the leadership. I just pray that Courtside Alliance Church would have tremendous impact in the Courtside community. Can you agree with me on that? 
I pray that every time they speak or have an activity and, and they invite people, I pray, Father, they would be winsome, spiritually attractive, that people would be drawn here to hear the story of your love and find their place in your family and in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, everybody shouting. Thank you for listening, folks. I've got to hurry up and get home so I can watch the Cowboy game. Starts in four hours. <laughs>